0: I began to unpack our theme for the year and looking at the theme of rediscovering family. And we're talking together all year long about what it means to be a family of faith, what it means to be a community of believers, asking and answering some some questions about all of what it means to live in community and to care for one another. And to take care of one another and to encourage one another and and to be submitted to Jesus Christ as the head of the body, and to be unified as one body submitted to Christ. so that that was a pretty lofty task that we we launched into. but in this emphasis, the very first sermon that I preached two weeks ago, and last week we celebrated our Chinese church's tenth uh, anniversary, but we picked back up today, but two weeks ago, I preached a message I entitled "A Profound Vision." for what the church can be. And if you recall that message... And I hope you do. I hope that some of you remember something from that. But we talked about hospitality. We were in Romans 12. We talked about uh, a focus of loving one another and preferring one another and caring for one another. And today I want to share the second message in this series. Again, all year long we're going to be talking in various ways about this idea of community. In fact, Wednesday nights uh, we're talking about community as we focus on a horizontal Jesus. If you've not been a part of what we're doing on Wednesday night, it's been an incredible study thus far. But today, I've entitled the message, An Uncomfortable Vision of What Church is Supposed to Be. Now, that sounds a little different. I mean, the first one, a profound vision for what it can be. It was inspiring and motivating. We talked about what church can be at its very best. Well, today, I want to talk about an uncomfortable vision of what the church is supposed to be. Now, none of us like to be uncomfortable, right? Think about those awkward moments in your life. I mean, weird stuff that happens that you just don't exactly know how to recover from, and it happens in church, too. You've all been there. I'm talking about blind date kind of uncomfortable, right? I mean, it's weird, but in church, there's weird stuff, too. Have you ever done that thing where you reached out to somebody, and you didn't know if you were supposed to fist bump them or shake their hand? It used to be that you didn't know if you should shake their hand or hug them, and you went to do both, and you almost kissed each other. You know I mean, just awkward. Okay, that will just kind of elbows or something different there are awkward moments in church like that have you ever had that moment where you know the song is building to a crescendo and people around you start standing up and everybody's seated and you go okay so am i supposed to stand now do i sit what do i do i'm not sure okay i'll stand up i wonder if anybody behind me is standing up and i'm here all along and your mind just runs and it's awkward we all have those uncomfortable moments. I can tell you a story. In In one of my earliest ministries, one of the things that I set out to do was to write everybody a birthday card, and this has been a long time ago, and they literally in our church office still had a mimeograph machine. If you don't know what that is, Google it later. But in mimeographing the list of all of the birthdays, my uh, ministry assistant, who is a volunteer, accidentally cut off part of the page, and so I didn't get all the information, and I sent Mr. Strong. Smith a birthday card but it was Mrs Smith that got cut off and she was Mr Smith's ex-wife and that wasn't a good thing to send a birthday card to yeah uncomfortable right pretty awkward there well uncomfortable is what Jesus wants us to be in some ways if we're going to follow him then we have to let go of comfort and we have to seek after him. And so what I want to do today is explore some thoughts from Scripture about our comfort level in church. Now, I'm not saying that it should be uh, uncomfortable to be here. It ought to be incredibly joy-filled. You ought to long to be here to be with other believers. You and I ought to run to church every weekend, and we ought to want to be together as a body of believers over and over again as we think about this notion of what Jesus has started. Now, if you think about it with me, when Jesus started, his ministry he immediately began to build community that was one of the first things he did he called Peter and James and John and Andrew and the others and over the next several years those men gathered together and they traveled together and they ministered together and they worked together and they ate together in a real sense they lived life together he cultivated real community among all of his his believers, his followers, those men. And it wasn't perfect. I would imagine that they probably had some loud discussions and disagreements, maybe even shouting matches. There was even a traitor in the middle of their community. So it was not perfect. But this community was something more than any of them would ever, ever forget. And their legacy would literally change the world. Jesus would take these 12 men and then 11, and they would change the world. they turned turn the world right side up because they had been invested in by him to become like him so that they could go for him and that is the pattern for all of us is that we would invest time in the word of God and the will of God together we would see that following Jesus is not an individual pursuit it's a group sport he's called us to do it together and that makes it messy and uncomfortable I mean if I'm going to do something I can do it by myself and do it the way I want to do it which is the right way and and then it's just done but but if I have to bring others into it well they may do it a different way and that may not be right according to me. But they might not think my way is right, and so we struggle. I just got to thinking about this. Can you imagine what it would have been like if Jesus and the apostles had been limited to what we consider traditional church services today? What if Jesus and the apostles had gathered once a week for about an hour, maybe even watching their watches if it went longer than that but they sang some songs and they heard some teaching and they engaged in small talk and then they went home for lunch and they left each other's presence and they just went about their own business until next week I very seriously doubt that one hour once a week would have inspired those men to to give their lives as they did and to pour themselves out for the cause of the gospel and of Christ like they did. But, But it's interesting to me that there are so many things we can learn from the community, and one is just simple. They did things together. They actually walked and talked and traveled and ministered and ate together. They were involved in each other's lives. In fact, so much of Jesus' teaching came from those things. He said, consider a farmer or a field, and he's pointing as they're walking. So much of the life experience of ministry in the community of the disciples happened along the way as they were doing life together. I want to ask you a question this morning, and it's a question that I asked in the sermon two weeks ago. What is your idea of a dream church? Think about that for a moment. What is your idea of the perfect church? What would it look like? Can you imagine it? I mean, Brother Mike, think about that. If you could script... The perfect church, and many a seminary student has probably done that. They said, I'm going to go, and I'm going to pastor the perfect church. And some county seat church in the middle of nowhere called them, and they said, it's going to be perfect. And they dated them for a little while, and then they got engaged because the committee called them, and, and they found out that it wasn't all perfect. But if you could script a perfect church, anybody, everybody here, what would it look like? I've just got to tell you that I think about that all the time. What what would it look like? How would it function? What would the the ethos be? What would the environment be like? I mean, you you begin to think about what that might be, and you consider what that kind of church could look like. I, I think of a church where everything is done just so and the building is pristine and perfect and sharp and it's got remnants of tradition and it's got a functionality to it that's good and and I think about the theology of that perfect church and the way that the programs work and everybody wants to volunteer all the time and you just begin to dream about what that church would look like it would be a church where nobody would ever have anything to be embarrassed by about it or ashamed of they would love to invite their friends to that church they would be proud of their church and they would excited to be in their church, and and you just begin to think of that perfect scenario and all of those plans for all of those things. But let me answer the question today exactly like I answered it two weeks ago. Here's the question. What is your idea of a dream church? And here is the answer. It doesn't matter because the church is not yours and the church is not mine and my idea and my preference of what a perfect church would look like needs to pale in comparison to this fact. God's idea of church is far more glorious than any dream church you and I could conjure up. And in fact, I would take it a step further. I've been reading a book called Uncomfortable that has really challenged my thinking. And Brett McCracken, who's a pastor, wrote these words. He said, when we think of what we want from a church, it's almost never what we need. Think about that. Why are you here this morning? Why do you attend church Is it so that you can be fed? Well, there's a part of that. Feeding is certainly a part of discipleship. But we're going to look at Jesus' words together and begin to consider what it means to rediscover family. And we need to debunk some myths if we can. A consumeristic approach to church where we dream up the things that we like and don't like. And we rate the music and the preaching. And we we look at all of those different factors. And the reality for us today is you might be thinking, you know what, in a dream church we'd have a better pastor than we do. I agree with you. I would look for probably somebody else. I would say there's somebody else that's more eloquent and, and sharper and more polished and put together. But the community of faith means that we gather together under the lordship of Jesus and the church that Jesus Christ builds will absolutely prevail against the gates of hell. The gates of hell cannot prevail against his church. So you today don't need my church. You don't need the staff to dream up what a perfect church would look like we simply need to get in line with the word of God and say this is what God has for us and sometimes when we do church family it's extremely uncomfortable I want you to hear this the church is not a place we choose it is a body to which we're called And we're not called to individual entertainment experiences. We're not called to anything other than to use our gifts and our abilities to build up the body and to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not called here to cherish our experience. We're called to treasure and cherish Christ. Let me say that again. Church is not about us cherishing an experience together. It's about cherishing Christ If you have a Bible with you, I want you to turn with me to John chapter 12. John 12, we're coming to the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. He has ridden into the city, the triumphal entry. They have said, Hosanna. They are excited that God saves. They have gotten word that from Bethany, he had raised Lazarus. And so there is a, a, a potential in their minds and in their hearts this could be the Messiah, and they're excited, and Passover is coming, so there are hundreds of thousands of people gathering in Jerusalem, and Jesus comes to this place of speaking, and it's a powerful, powerful word, beginning in John 12, uh, verse 23 and following. Jesus replied, now the time has come for the Son of Man to enter his glory. It's interesting, on three other occasions before this, he says, this is not my time. But he says, now is the time. This ought to bubble up in our hearts with excitement. All of the prophecy, all of the promise. We know from our study last year in the book of Daniel that there would come a day when it was predicted that from the decree, the temple would be rebuilt. There would be one day that he would ride in, that he would have an hour of visitation and all of the hopes and all of the dreams of all of the people's lives over generations was now fulfilled and Jesus says now is the time. He knows the cross is at hand. He knows that the Garden of Gethsemane is at hand. He knows that Passover is at hand, and he will be the perfect, sinless, spotless lamb that will take away the sin of the world. He replied, now is the time. Now the time has come for the Son of Man to enter his glory. Look at verse 24. I tell you the truth. Unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone but its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. Those who love their life in this world will lose it. Those who care nothing for their life in this world will keep it for eternity. Some translations would use even more harsh language, stronger language to say those that hate their lives in this present world will keep it for eternity. Verse 26, anyone who wants to serve me must, read those two words, follow me. Let me say it again. Anyone who wants to serve me must what? Follow me because my servants must be where I am and the Father will honor anyone who serves me. Hardy Street, these are uncomfortable words. Death is the way to life. Jesus is speaking of hating your life in this present life. If I hate this present life, it will play into eternity. We don't gravitate toward that kind of thinking. We don't embrace that kind of mentality. You and I don't think often of dying to self and dying to rights. No, especially as red-blooded Americans in the middle of a political situation that we may not like, we demand our rights, and we want to stand up and fight for our rights and live for self. And Jesus said none of those things. But what Jesus did say is if anyone, that's Pretty universal. If any one of you want to serve me, you have to follow me. Write your name in there. Scott, if you're going to serve me, you have to follow me. Scott, you have to give up your plans and your dreams for a perfect church. You have to give up your plans for how everything in your life should go. In fact, you need to just despise those things and go to where I am. Follow me and I'm going to die. Jesus often said that about us. In fact, it is all throughout Scripture. The more I have studied resurrection as I think about Easter this year, the more I've considered this idea, we are called to die. A call to follow Jesus is a bidding to come and die. Pick up a cross and follow me. Paul said this, I have been crucified with Christ. Jesus is calling us to be crucified with him, identified with him in that. Jesus' way is different than our way. God's economy operates differently than ours. C.S. Lewis said something I'd never read before in all of his writings before I saw it this way, but I want you to, to hear this. He said, I didn't go to religion to make me happy. I always knew that a bottle of wine would do that. If you want a religion that'll make you feel completely or really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. Most churches don't put that on the brochure. The marquee outside usually does not say, come and die. It may say, come and dine. We got good food. We got good fellowship. We got great music. We got good preaching. And and we tout those things that, that play to our own consumeristic idea. And all of us, whether we've really gone through the exercise of thinking of a dream church or not, have rated church up and down. We've rated Sunday school up and down and Bible studies up and down. And we sit and we say, bless me if you can. And Jesus said, no, no, no. Jesus said, if anyone will serve me, follow me. So this moves us into a place of very, very interesting thinking. For us this morning, I want to take just a little bit of time to think about the economy of God related to following Jesus, especially in light of community. Think about this. An, uh, an unsown seed does not produce fruit. The only seed that will not bear fruit is the one left in the bag, left in the barn. And from an eternal perspective, death is the means to life. Jesus said it here. It's a strange paradox that, that Jesus' death led to eternal life for many and that same arch- overarching principle really is true for our lives. That if we will die to self, then all of his purposes can be lived out through our lives. The Christian who lives with eternal values in view of eternity will have a productive spiritual life. It's a matter of setting our priorities. The person who loses his life is the one living for eternity. The person who loves his life is the one who's living for now. And Brother Wes has already spoken to that. If you're living your best life now, the future is bleak. The outcome is hell. We know the best is yet to come for those who are in Christ. In Christ, we know that this life may be hard, but we're never alone. We may be pressed down, and, but we're not crushed. We may have a sense of despair, but there's always hope because heaven awaits and as we begin to think about that, the, the, the idea of following Jesus and serving him we will one day be honored by God the Father. Jesus said those words in this text. He is not clearly suggesting that his followers should abuse their bodies. He's not saying hating your life means self-flagellation or mutilation or, or sleep deprivation. He's not saying that you should be cruel to yourself. What he's saying is this. Our, our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit, so if you're abusing it, that's sin. He's calling us for self- denial. He's saying deny yourself. The, the danger temptation of looking at things around you and making idols out of them. Find your satisfaction in me alone. If you're going to serve me, follow me, but I'm on my way to die. He knew that resurrection was there. Followers of Jesus need to deny themselves of pleasures that stand in the path of glorifying and obeying God. It doesn't mean that we can't enjoy life. No. In fact, he said, I've come that you might have life to the full. You would have abundant life. The greatest possible life is for the life of a Christian. In fact, what I'm seeing in these very days is the most miserable people that I encounter are backslidden carnal Christians. They're Christians who once placed their faith or their hope in Christ or at least acknowledged Christ and now are living in despair and in fear and in anxiety. That's a miserable place to be. And for us, if we don't live with a sense of passionate excitement over the fact that Jesus is coming again and that we can follow him and he said we can be with him, oh, that we would grasp that. It doesn't mean, it doesn't mean being miserable. It simply means being abandoned to God. Now, I want you to see three things. I'll put in your notes, just three words. Carnal, cultural, and Christ-centered Christianity. And I want you to see that for a moment because I want to talk about it. Because I think all of us need to maybe do some evaluation this morning. If we're going to be a family of faith, we better be followers of Christ. There are three different descriptors. I didn't make these up. They're in the Bible. The Bible talks about this idea of a carnal Christian. 1 Corinthians 3, Paul addresses a church filled with people who are carnal. They're living out sinful mindset. They're living in such a way that they're just indulging their flesh. In fact, let me give you three words to jot down under carnal. Fleshly, immature, and sinful. Notice we've said that these are carnal Christians. We're talking about believers. I'm not talking about lost people here. I'm talking about somebody who came to faith, but they never grew. You see, we, are, we start out in a place where we, we are being transformed, and, and that transformation takes place over time. And over time, we are shaped and molded into the image and the likeness of Jesus. It doesn't happen immediately. Let me read to you Paul's words, 1 Corinthians 3. Dear brothers and sisters, when I was with you, I couldn't talk to you as I would spiritual people. I had to talk to you as though you belonged to this world or as though you were infants in Christ. I had to feed you with milk, not solid food, because you weren't ready for anything stronger. And you still aren't ready. For you are still controlled by your sinful nature. You are jealous of one another and quarrel with one another. And he asked, doesn't that prove that you are controlled by your sinful nature? Aren't you living like people of the world? So as we think of a carnal Christian, they are fleshly, they're worldly minded, they are okay with sin and they're immature in their faith. You, you watch somebody that doesn't get their way and they get swollen up mad, it may be a sense of immaturity or carnality in their christian faith and all of us do that at times we will we will revert back to those things but we are to mortify the flesh we are to kill our flesh and we are to be abandoned to god and dead to sin that's why we are told in scripture that we are to deny ourselves daily and that we are to become living sacrifices daily presenting ourselves to god again it doesn't make misery you need to recognize that repentance isn't a bummer it's a blessing That when I repent, now I've got all of this free access of relationship with God unencumbered. But when I live in an immature, selfish me way, doesn't that look like a physical toddler or an infant? I mean, when somebody says to me that they slept like a baby, I just want to punch them in the throat because I was like, were you up every two hours screaming? That's how babies sleep. That's how I remembered at my house. You know, if you say you sleep like a log, that's one thing. Sleeping like a baby is another. Babies are selfish creatures. They scream and say, feed me. They scream and say, change me. They scream when you change them. They just don't like change. None of us do. But immaturity and fleshly, worldly mindset in a Christian has some of the same exact tendencies. And part of the reason churches are facing what they're facing today is because we're filled with carnal Christian mindset. Does that make sense, yes or no? It's kind of uncomfortable isn't it well I didn't pull any punches that's the title of the sermon we're called to move out of that we're called to move away from that a genuine believer in Christ those outbreaks of carnality ought to be the exception not the rule and it's so dangerous because carnal Christians are not submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ and they show little or no fruit in fact it's hard sometimes to tell if they're saved at all And maybe, just maybe, it's because they come into the next word. We're going to call them cultural Christians. And under cultural Christians, I want you to write these three words, in name only. In name only. Just because somebody calls themselves a Christian doesn't mean they are a Christian. Profession doesn't mean possession. They can, I, I, could, I could tell you that I identify as a multimillionaire, but my bank will not recognize that identification because that's not me. You can call yourself a Christian, but we can inspect your fruit. We can see into your life. And there are cultural Christians that are superficial in in their identification with Christ. They identify in name only. They come to church because they're supposed to. They come to church because their family always did. They're Baptist because their grandmama was. And they go on and on in this idea of cultural trapping. And it's easier to look Christian than to be Christian. To be Christian is uncomfortable because i got to let go of the reins and say, Jesus, I want to serve you. And so he says, okay, if anyone would serve me, follow. And for us, we need to get to this place where we don't recognize that that our Christianity only identifies with certain aspects like our politics or or good works. A, A lot of times people are just trying to smile and be nice and be good and be decent, but there's no transformation You know, Somebody said this not long ago. I heard a preacher that was talking and and he said something so powerful. He said, Jesus doesn't throw a life preserver to a drowning man. Jesus dives out of the boat and goes to the bottom and he pulls a dead, lifeless corpse from the bottom and he raises it to life. Jesus didn't come to make your life a little better, a little more comfortable. He brought to redeem you from death. He brought into our world eternal life. He breathed the breath of life into us and the only way that was possible because God is holy and we are not is that we would have a mediator who was sinless and spotless, a sufficient substitute and Jesus Christ is and uh, was and is that substitute. He died a sinless substitutionary death. He lived a sinless life. He rose victoriously and he's coming again and whoever will put their faith in Jesus Christ and that completed work, calling him Lord of their lives, believing that God raised him from the dead, they shall be saved. You and I need to come to the place where we see it is uncomfortable to follow Jesus, but it's the only right path. All of the others lead to destruction. And if our church would get serious about this, we would probably dwindle. It happened in Gideon's day. We saw there were a whole bunch of people that liked to be around until the arrows started flying. I, well, I don't really want to fight. And they said, well, you just go home. And God whittled it down to a group who said, we'll trust God to do the job. There was a whole army on one side of the valley and one champion of Gath on the other side screaming and taunting at God. And they said, well, I probably don't need to go fight that giant. And David said, well, my God can. And my God will. And so David stood up to the test. Maybe, just maybe, if some Christians would say, I'm going to follow Jesus. It's not about me and my preferences. It's not about my design or my desire for a perfect church. I just want to be a part of his church. And if Hardy Street will become his church and is becoming his church, we're going to die to a lot of things. That's what Jesus called us to. He said, unless that kernel dies and is planted into the ground, it will not produce fruit but the fruit will come when we die. If we want to see our community reached, if we want to see darkness pushed back, it's because we will die in our own ways and follow Jesus Christ. We can't just be cultural. It can't be because of your family background or because of your personal experience or even the country of residence. There are some people that are North American Christians only. The type and the brand and the style and the Activity of your Christianity wouldn't fly in some third world countries because it's not biblical, it's cultural. Cultural Christians have a fan mentality. They are, they are admirers of Jesus, but not followers of Jesus. Somebody said this you want to be close enough to Jesus to get the benefits, but not so close that it requires sacrifice. Ouch. Instead of fans, we're called to be a flock. God's called us together to be, out of reverence to the shepherd and the overseer of our souls, one united body. And that is that third type. It's Christ-centered Christianity. We're almost done here. I want you to write these words, surrendered and devoted. So carnal Christians are fleshly and immature. Carnal Christians are sinful and live that out. Cultural Christians are in name only. They're really not of Christ. They can come to church, but they don't belong to Christ. The sold-out Christians that are surrendered and devoted, it doesn't mean that they're perfect. It means they're surrendered, and it's uncomfortable, and it demands death. Now, I'm not going to belabor the point, but I've put in your notes something that has come up over the last 10 years or so. There was a book that was written about 10 years ago, and it described moralistic therapeutic deism. And that sounds like a bunch of theological mumbo-jumbo, but think about each of these. People are living their Christianity morally. I'm gonna do better than I do bad. I'm gonna be nicer than I am mean. I'm gonna give a little more than I take. And it's all about my behavior. Well, you can set the standard. You know, you can look at your neighbor and say, well, my neighbor is a sorry neighbor because he doesn't cut his grass and I cut my grass and keep it clean. Or you can look at the other neighbor and say, well, he doesn't weed eat his and I weed eat it. I mean, so I'm just better than he is. I can look at somebody else that's doing so much better than I, but I begin to set the standards and say, hey, I love my wife and my kids and I pay my bills and I pay my taxes and I keep my yard cut. And where, where are those standards in Scripture? Jesus said that we would have to be perfect to be in the presence of a holy God. In and through this, that we have all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And so it's moralistic. It's easy to come to church and pat myself on the back and say, I was in church today. We we even for a long time, cheered it on, Mike. We, we put it on the little envelopes and said, I brought my Bible today and I'm in Sunday school today. I know that's a long, long time ago and it's a world far away for most of you, but we still keep score by the wrong end zone. And we're dancing around saying, look at me, I'm, I'm pretty good. I mean, I even sing in the choir. I come on Wednesday nights. That's when the super spiritual people show up. No, none of those things. And, and all the while Jesus is saying, you wanna serve me, follow me moralistic what about therapeutic therapeutic simply means this it's not about being good it's about feeling good I just want to feel better about myself and then the deism it means that God spun the top and just let it go I don't really want to believe in a creator that is personal but a creator that is impersonal I can get that he's in a galaxy far far away so I'm doing my thing and he's doing his So when we begin to think of moralistic, therapeutic deism, there are a whole lot of people that are in churches just like this one today, and that describes their heart. I want to do a little better. I want to feel a little better, and I just want to do my own thing. I gave you some of the beliefs of that system. We're not going to go over those. There's one huge problem with all of that kind of construct. Jesus bids us to come and die. Jesus doesn't say, do better and feel better. Jesus said, turn to me and I will rescue you. Turn to me and I will redeem you. He tells us to take up a cross. And that call to die is a call to let go of our agenda and our ego and to be unselfish. We we talked about it a little bit this morning in Bible study from Philippians 2. Although Jesus was God, he didn't consider that something to be uh, beholden and grasped to. instead he emptied himself he was willing to die it's an uncomfortable vision but if we would do this now very quickly let me give you three realities for our church of christ-centered christianity an uncomfortable vision of what the church is supposed to be number one a new set of goals pleasing him instead of pleasing me becomes my goal In every area of my life, I need to surrender to him. Every area. That that may sound lofty and philosophical, but what I'm saying, church, is if we're going to be a family of faith, we're going to have to get into each other's lives, and you will not get into somebody else's life until you start surrendering yourself to Christ. The church is a community of believers in one locality that have been drawn together by their common experience of grace in Jesus. And that church ought to be a community of people on a journey together to God. So when we do that, me becomes we. When we do that, caring for others' needs becomes a priority. When we set these new goals that are set by the kingdom, real community and authentic nurturing and praying happens. We've got a, a, a number of people in our church that have tested positive for COVID over the last several weeks, and it's been so cool to hear stories as I've talked to people on the phone, and they've said so-and-so for my Sunday school class dropped food off on the front doorstep. They did ding-dong ditch and ran away, but that's okay, They dropped off food. They've been praying for me and praying with me, and I've gotten cards and phone calls and texts. That's part of getting into each other's lives. You see, we have a new set of goals. The goal is not, what am I going to get out of it today, but what am I going to put in? What am I going to bring to the table? I love this. Did you notice that when you said, where are my college students, they're all serving? Did you see that? And and I just got to be honest. I know the attitude. We say, well, I did my time. I've served in the past. It's time for somebody else to serve. No, it's time for all of us to serve because Jesus said if the young people, if the college students want to serve me, they'll follow. No, he didn't. He said if anyone will follow me or if anyone will serve me, they'll follow. That makes sense? Let's keep going. Number two, a new system of values. A new system of values. John 18, 36, Jesus answered, my kingdom is not an earthly Kingdom. If it were, my followers would fight to keep me from being handed over to the Jewish leaders. But my kingdom is not of this world. I think too many of us have allowed the system, uh, the values of the world system to infect our wanters. We, we've watched a little bit too much of the marketing of television and internet that has just tantalized our eyesight and we see shiny things and we long for those and we say, boy, I want that. I've told you the progression. The progression is you go to the mall and spend a lot of time at the mall, and you say, oh, I like that. And you keep hanging around there, and you go from I like that to I want that. And if you hang around very long, you'll go from I like that to I want that to I need that. You didn't need it before. And Stephanie and I said early on in, our, in raising our family, we, we want our children to spend a lot more time in soup kitchens and homeless shelters than in shopping malls. Because shopping malls foster a sense of, I need that. I'm entitled to that. I deserve that. And it feeds self. And when we could go to a place and they could roll their sleeves up and they could serve somebody else and recognize that Christ says, if you're going to serve me, you got to follow me, he wouldn't necessarily be hanging out in all of the places that would feed our egos. I'm not interested in a bigger church for a bigger church's sake. I just want to see people know Jesus. And that will happen when you and I die to self and we're planted into the ground and raised with Christ and we go out on mission. What did I say about the disciples? He invested in them, did life with them. They grew to become like him and then they went out for him. We have a new, a whole new set of goals. We have a whole new system of values. And thirdly, I want you to see this we have a whole new standard of activities. There's so many that we could give, but the one I'll center on is is in this application. Jesus said, I'm gonna give you a new command. Love one another. Not just love one another, but love one another as I have loved you. It's a command. Now, If I am selfishly looking for an entertainment experience through church, for social strokes at church, fellowship's a good thing. But if you came in here this morning for any other purpose but to say, Jesus, I want to follow you, then maybe you need to go back and evaluate your following. Hello. There are times that we need to love people enough to tell them the truth. We don't need to tell people what they want to hear. We need to tell them what they need to hear. Now, i got to tell you, the word uncomfortable stamped in my brain all week as I was preparing to preach this message. It's uncomfortable to look at people and say, you know what, we're not doing it right. And it's we. And you say, well, you're the guy that's up there, so it's your fault. Well, it is. Yes, I'll own that. But the uncomfortable nature of what Jesus is calling us to is that we would die to ourselves and we would let go of our sense of comfort and we would say, whatever he has for us is best. Whatever he has for us is highest. Whatever he has for us is most glorious. It may not be the easiest. It may not be pain-free. It may be difficult, but whatever he has for me is best. Do you believe that? If you do, then let's begin to rediscover what it means to be a family because the uncomfortable truth of what a church needs to be is a sacrificial, selfless place where we prefer one another over our own needs and we love with great love as Christ has loved us. Let me just tell you this. I'm going to invite our musicians to come and as they come, we're going to sing one simple song of decision. And the the message today has not been so gospel-centered that it's all about being saved. But you know that if you today are are drowning in your sin, if you're far from God and you say, I'm just struggling to make sense of anything, we have people that would love to pray with you and take God's word and share with you how you can be saved. The gospel is good news. And the good news is you don't have to do it alone. Christ has done it for you. He came into our world. He left heaven and came to earth so men and women and boys and girls could leave earth earth and go to heaven but even more than that it's a present possession you can have abundant life eternal life today and so they are called encouragers they gather right over here and when we begin to sing if you just need somebody to pray with you or talk to you why don't you slip out from where you are people will let you out and you come and you share with them that you just need somebody to pray with they'll pray with you they won't embarrass you in any way we're not going to do anything but try to encourage and help you so you let God have his way Maybe you looked at that list and you said, I, I've been carnal in my Christianity. I, I've been immature. I've been sinful. The, the beauty is, the remedy of that is repent. Turn to Christ. Our outburst of rebellion ought to become the exception, not the rule. Our fleshly uh, giving uh, ought to be the exception, not the rule. We ought to not give into those things. And we grow into maturity in Christ. By simply turning to him in repentance and in faith. Today, let God have his way. Let's stand together. We're going to sing just very briefly. And if you need to talk to an encourager, you can.